Right, Psalm 2. Why do the nations rage and the people plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers take counsel together, against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs, and the Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make nations your heritage, and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron, and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear, and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the sun, lest he be angry and you perish in the way. For his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Thanks, Louise. Right, folks, do turn with me to Mark's Gospel, Mark chapter 1. And we've got a, a lot of work to do today. So it's early in the morning, so you're full of beans. We've got lots of work to do today. The reason is Matt Malcolm is our executive pastor, and I'm feeling the burden of that because he insists I stick to the preaching program, which is not easy for me, I have to say. You you know how I can waffle. And so he said to me, Dwayne, finish Mark chapter 1 today. So that's what we're going to do. I'm under orders. So we've got lots of work to do. So make sure you've got your Bible open in front of you, Mark chapter 1, and uh, we're going to read it as we go along. But before we do that, let me just read uh, the first couple of verses. Mark chapter 1. Everyone there? The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. John appeared, baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea, And all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist. And he ate locusts and wild honey. And he preached, saying, After me comes him who is mightier than I, the strap of his sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. That's what we looked at last week, but let's pray and then we'll carry on. Lord Jesus Christ, as we open these words and we study them, what we were saying to the children earlier remains true for us as well. Your words are powerful. They will accomplish what you set out for them to do. Some of us here this morning will be hardened Your words will pronounce judgment 
are those of us who won't listen and change. But your words will also give life and new life to whoever has ears to hear. So we pray this morning for the latter. We pray that you will break down hearts, bend wills, mould us, shape us. Please do your work this morning, we pray. Amen. All right, well, have you ever had a... Oh, thank you, you found it. We lost this for a moment. Oh, you don't know how to do it. You have to put that in the USB. But it it doesn't matter, I'm sure. Well, give it a go. Pop it in and let's see if it works. Have you ever had an announcement that has completely changed your life? Can you think of an announcement? Out of the blue, words came to you, dramatic announcement, and your life was never the same. I'm sure you can think of one or two examples. I'll, I'll tell you my example. I was living in Mitcham in London, in less than salubrious surroundings. Um, it was, it's not a pretty place in London. In this little tiny one-bedroom flat, little kitchen, Mitcham, London, struggling to make ends meet. Naomi and I had moved over there to seek fame and fortune. We found neither. But there we were living. And one day, and I can see it totally clearly in my head, Naomi came down the little passage, was about from here to that chair, tiny little flat, with millions. It's amazing, London. But anyway, and so she comes down this passage and she says to me, Dwayne, I've got something to tell you. Actually, I think I'd better show you. And I stood there, quite happy, no worries, mate. And there she showed me this little thing with a thin blue line on it. It was a life-changing event. It was a dramatic, actually it was a wife-changing event. It was a dramatic announcement which we were not expecting had taken the necessary precautions, I might just tell you. And uh, that announcement changed our lives forever. Now that's what we're looking at this morning. If this thing works, and it does, we're studying these announcements, five dramatic announcements Five life-changing announcements. News for the whole planet. First of all, we saw that Mark announces the good news about Jesus, God's chosen king, in verse 1. We studied it last week. Then we saw the prophets announce the messenger who prepares the way of the Lord. We looked at that last week. We looked at those medley of quotes from Moses, from Isaiah, from Malachi, which tells me the whole Old Testament is all about the one who is to come. Then we saw that John announces the mighty one who will baptize with the Holy Spirit. And we studied that last week, El Shaddai, the God who is coming to cleanse these people in the Holy Spirit. By the way, the reason I use these points and the whole purpose of studying Mark's gospel is so that you will be able to pass it on to someone else as you sit and read Mark's gospel with someone else. That's why I'm sticking to such clear points. But what we're going to do today is we're going to look at two more announcements. Number four, God the Father announces Jesus as the ruler who will judge the nations. God the Father announces Jesus as the ruler who will judge the nations. So look at verse 9 to 11. Have a look with me. In those days Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens 
being torn open and the spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, you are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. All right, this is familiar territory. Jesus gets baptized. So picture the scene. Just, just think of the scene. Here's what happens. Jesus comes from Nazareth of Galilee, and he's baptized. And I don't want to act it out in case some of you think it was like this, and some of you think it was like this. And it doesn't tell us, so I don't know. But whichever way he did it, the point is, is that they were in the water together because they came out of the water, and Jesus is baptized by John. And immediately the heavens get torn open. And the Spirit descends on Jesus like a dove. And there's this massive, dramatic announcement. You are my son. With you, I'm well pleased. What's going on? How do we understand this? What's this all about? And to steal my thunder completely, let me tell you what it's about and then prove it to you. This is nothing less than a brand new beginning. In fact, what you've got here is a brand new creation. A brand new humanity. In fact, this is on your marks, get set, go. This is God about to fix everything. God is going to fix everything just like he promised he would. And you're saying, Dwayne, where do you get that from? Let me show you. There's a couple of clues, very careful clues that make us understand. First of all, there's the first clue. When he came out of the water, verse 10, he saw the heavens being torn open. Yeah? So? Well, that's actually very important. What does it mean? Heavens being torn open. What does it mean? And the answer is this. God is breaking in. God is coming down. Heavens being torn open means God is coming down. How do I know that? And the reason I know that is Isaiah 64. And we don't have time to look it up, but write it down if you're looking in your notes. In Isaiah chapter 64, there is that exact line Isaiah prays and he says, Oh Lord, if only you would tear the heavens open and come down. And you read the rest of Isaiah 64 and you see what he's asking God to do. As an Israelite who's living in horrible times, apostasy from God, he says, God, our sins are killing us. You've promised so many good things None of them are going to come true because of our sin. Our sins are weighing us down. So listen, do us a favor. Tear the heavens and come down and deal with our sins. Fix the mess that we've made. That's the prayer in Isaiah chapter 64. But the important thing is the words are identical. Oh, that you would tear the heavens and come down and deal with our sins. Now, when you come to Mark's Gospel, and you see that the heavens were torn open, what do you expect? This isn't some formula for, um, you know, 
I don't know the clever words, for surostratus separating or something. It's biblical language for God coming down to deal with our sins. Not only that, here's why I know that's true. Because that word, tear open, is used twice in Mark's Gospel. Here, and for a free cup of coffee, who can tell me where else? Think. I think you'll know. Yes. Yes. See, Matt Lovell, very clever guy, that guy at the back there. The curtain of the temple is torn open. It's the same word. You see, what we do is we hear about the temple being torn open, and it's not bad. We think, ah, that means we can have access to God. We can go into the Holy of Holies, which was previously sealed off by this curtain. And that's not bad. But more importantly, the temple being torn from top to bottom is not so much about us going in as God busting out. God going out into all the world. No longer is God confined to a little box, the Holy of Holies. Now that Jesus has died, God has torn open. He has come out. He's breaking out into all the world. So, when Jesus gets baptized and the heavens are torn open, what we're being told is that God is breaking in to the world. He's coming and he's coming to fix everything. That's the first clue. The second clue is the line, the Spirit descending on him like a dove at the end of verse 10. I saw the heavens being torn open. We've understood that. And the Spirit descending on him like a dove. What does that mean? And the answer is, and we don't mind doing this every single time. We've done it before. Keep your hand in Mark and go to the very start of your Bible. Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. Very beginning of your Bible. We've done this before, but it's always good to keep doing this. Keep encouraging ourselves in the Word of God. So look at Genesis chapter 1, verse 1 to 3. In the beginning, so we're at the very start, This is why I'm suggesting to you it's a new beginning, because watch. God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void. Darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said. So what you've got in the very beginning, get the picture in your head, is you've got God up there somewhere. You've got the water and the Spirit of God hovering over the water. And then there is a word from God. Let there be light. That's the picture you've got. Now, Mark would have spoken Aramaic. When Mark's writing Mark's Gospel, most of the people spoke Aramaic. Very few people spoke Hebrew. And what they did was they did this thing called the Aramaic Targums. Because everyone spoke Aramaic, the Hebrew... Oh, I don't know why that's spitting like that. But uh, maybe I'll bend it a bit away. But the Hebrew people, uh, the scholars, translated the Old Testament into Aramaic. They paraphrased it like our 
the New Living Translation of the Bible. That's a paraphrase of the Bible. That's what they did with the Hebrew. And they paraphrased it into Aramaic. And when you come to verse 2, do you know what the Aramaic Targum would say? It said, the Spirit of God was fluttering like a dove. That's what it says in the Aramaic Bible that Mark would have been very familiar with since he was yea high. So when we come back to Mark 1, verse 10, and you've got this voice from heaven and the water there, the water of Jordan, and the spirit fluttering like a dove or descending like a dove, and a voice from heaven, what do you think you've got? What does 2 plus 2 equal? Well, what you've got here is Genesis chapter 1 all over again. What you've got here is a brand new creation. What you've been watching is the start of a brand new universe centered on this person dripping with water out of his beard. A carpenter, ironically enough, about to recreate heaven's and earth. A new beginning, a new creation, a new humanity, and a new hope. So God the Father announces Jesus. We know it's a new beginning and a new creation, but what does verse 11 mean? Look at verse 11. You are my beloved Son. With you, I am well pleased. Now, if you were listening carefully, what does God mean? If you were listening carefully, um, Jackie Limboris read Psalm 2 to us. Did you hear those exact words? In Psalm 2, we don't have time to turn there, what you've got is chaos. Not watery chaos, like the start of the universe, but chaos amongst people. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? They take their stand against God and against his Christ. You've got chaos You've got people in rebellion against God making a mess of the planet. And so why, how is God going to deal with a mess? What is God going to do? And I showed you with the children's talk, what are God's tools? God goes into his toolbox and he hauls out a tool. Which tool does he haul out? His word. And so what he does in Psalm 2 is he makes a promise. He speaks to this person whose identity at this stage will remain anonymous. He speaks to this person and he says, I will appoint you as the ruler of the nations. You are going to be the king and you are going to sort out this mess. I will give the nations as your inheritance, the peoples of the earth as your possession. And it's not very pretty because what God says to him is, and you will rule them with an iron rod. You will smash them to pieces like pottery. In other words, God says, I have installed a king and my king is going to fix the mess on the earth and he's going to beat up the baddies. Who is that king? We only have one clue. God says, you are my son. That's all we know. We don't know who that king is because it's a very long time ago. We don't know who that king is until we get to Mark chapter 1. Because would you believe it? A Galilean, who's a carpenter by trade, steps out of the water and from heaven there is this voice, you are my son. In other words, what is God doing? 
He's identifying Jesus as that king. He's identifying Jesus as the long-promised, chosen ruler of the world who's going to fix it all. That's what's going on here. Jesus, God the Father, announces Jesus as the ruler who will judge the nations. And it's astonishing. You know, if God hadn't said it, who would have believed it? I mean, would you look at a, a peasant carpenter and think, oh, that's God's solution to the planet? I mean, you wouldn't have thought that. No wonder God had to testify. This is my son. Look, everybody. Look, this one. He's the one who will fix the planet. He is the ruler. Now, there is more. We don't have time. But the second half of the verse, you are my beloved son, Psalm 2, over roast chicken today. Look at Psalm 2. With you I am well pleased is a quote from Isaiah 42. We're not going to look at it, but essentially it answers the question of how. Whoa, rod of iron. But Dwayne, I read Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. I don't see Jesus hauling. He does take a whip and he chases a few people out the temple. But I know how it ends. He ends up dying on a cross. Where's the rod of iron? Huh? Where's the beat the nations like pottery? Well, you have to go to Isaiah 42. Because when you look at that quote with you, I am well pleased. God is teaching us how Jesus is going to fix the world. And it's not first and foremost with a rod of iron. That will come, by the way. It's first and foremost through suffering. And we'll pick this up later as we study Mark's gospel. But what you have in God's announcement of Jesus is you've got the ruler who will beat up the nations, but the ruler who's going to suffer for his people. Those things come together. God the Father announces Jesus as the ruler who will judge the nations. All right, with that in mind, if Jesus is the one who's going to restore the universe, because that's what God says, and he's going to quell rebellion against God, don't you expect some proof? Huh? Wouldn't you want some proof? Demonstrate to me that this is true. And that's exactly what happens in verse 12 to verse 13. Look at 12 and 13. Here is this dramatic announcement. Now watch what happens. Verse 12 and 13. The Spirit immediately drove Jesus out into the wilderness. And he was in the wilderness for 40 days being tempted by Satan. And he was with wild animals. And the angels were serving or ministering. Same word, him. What's going on? What's that about? Huh? Well, here's the thing. The Spirit leads Jesus, chosen by God, identified by God as the ruler of the world. He leads Jesus out into battle. He's gone out into the wilderness to fight. And what he does is he conquers Satan. He was with wild animals and angels served him. Jesus does everything in verse 12 and 13 that God's first son couldn't do. Adam. The Bible teaches that Adam was God's son. We know that from Luke chapter 1. Adam was God's son. That is, Adam was chosen by God to rule the planet, to fix it from all the mess that Satan had already begun. 
Adam was meant to rule over God's creation. Adam was meant to grow the kingdom of God, guard the garden. Adam was meant to conquer Satan. But instead, Satan, in the form of a wild animal, a snake, defeated Adam. And instead of angels serving Adam, they get swords and they guard the way to the tree of life. They push Adam away because he fell. What we've been told here in verse 12 and 13 is that Jesus is the better Adam, the true Adam, the true Son of God, who doesn't uh, fail but succeeds in every area where Adam failed. Not only that, later on, God chose another son, Israel. Israel is my son. Israel, of course, was meant to do what Adam did. And they failed as well. And that's why you've got 40 days in the wilderness. Just like Israel, we're 40 years marching through the wilderness, being tempted and failing dismally. Here is Jesus in verse 12 and 13. The true Adam, the true Israel, the one who succeeds, who conquers. He defeats Satan. He's with wild animals. Angels are serving him. He's doing what no one else could do. So, God the Father announces Jesus as the ruler who will judge the nations and verse 12 and 13 give us a cameo of Jesus doing what God said. Proof. But our last announcement is number five. Jesus himself announces the arrival of the kingdom of God. Look at verse 14 and 15. Now after John was arrested... Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Here is the fifth dramatic announcement. Now, and Jesus can only do this announcement because he's conquered. He's been tested. And he's come through with 100%. So now he's in a position to usher in the kingdom of God. And look at what he says. The gospel of God, the good news of God, is in fact the arrival of the kingdom of God in Jesus Christ. So the obvious question is, you're thinking, why is that good news? Well, you won't know unless you know what the kingdom is. Only then will you appreciate just what great news. Because Jesus is saying, at last... The kingdom of God has arrived. Because everyone there has been waiting. Yeah, yeah, right. You know, pie in the sky when you die. When's this kingdom coming? And Jesus says, it's here. Good news, it's arrived. What is the kingdom of God? By the way, every time you go on holiday, look, there's Kevin and Jan. Which tell, when you see Kevin and Jan in church, you know it's spring. <laughs> I hope they don't mind me saying that. Because they follow the sun up north. So when I see them, I get happy because I love Kevin and Jan. But I even prefer spring. Um, but the point is, now I lost my, train of, my own train of thought. Where was I going with that? Kevin and Jan, you put me off. Uh, oh yes, that's what I was saying. Here's the thing. As the, Jesus arrives, the kingdom of God arrives. Now every time you like Kevin and Jan and you go on holiday, what are you looking for? It shows that deep in your heart, you long for something better. You want better weather. You want better scenery. You want peace and quiet. You want to get out of the city. What is that other than a deep longing 
for a better place. And if ever you felt that, you felt what it's like to long for the kingdom of God. Because the kingdom of God is exactly that. Although, ask Kevin and Jan, they'll tell you they didn't find it. Because it's not on this earth. It's Jesus who ushers in the kingdom. The kingdom of God is God's rule. That is, his good and kind rule. A place where God is the boss. Wouldn't that be nice? Don't have to lock the front door. Leave the keys in the ignition. Because it's a place where God is the ruler. In a good place, no sickness. I was telling to Adam and them, they've just gone through pneumonia and bronchitis for the last three or four or five weeks. Imagine a place where that doesn't happen. Hmm? So a good God ruling, a good place where there's no disease, no crying, and how about this, and this one you can hardly believe, a good people, a people who are changed, who are kind, selfless, friendly. The kingdom of God is those three things. God's rule in God's place with God's people in it. It's paradise. Ningaloo Reef is close. Still not there. That's what we're longing for. And Jesus says it's good news because guess what? It's arrived. It's arrived. By the way, if you didn't understand those things, you need the whole Old Testament. Because the whole Old Testament is about that kingdom of God. Now that's the good news. Jesus says it's arrived. The question is how does it arrive? It arrives in a person, Jesus. When Jesus steps onto the stage of planet Earth, the kingdom of God has arrived. It's good news. So here are five dramatic announcements. Mark announces the good news about Jesus, God's chosen king. The prophets announce the messengers who prepare the way of the Lord. John announces the mighty one who will baptize with the Holy Spirit. God the Father announces Jesus as the ruler who will judge the nations. Jesus announces the arrival of the kingdom of God. What do we do with those five announcements? What do we do? We've got five dramatic announcements from every possible quarter. This isn't like Muhammad. Muhammad announces this full stop. Look at all these people talking to us. All these announcements. What do we do with it? Well, Jesus tells us. Imagine Naomi comes to me with a thin blue line. Says, look, darling. By the way, that's the first thin blue line. I didn't even know what it meant, actually. So I said, yeah, that's cool. What's that? Do you know what this means? No. Well, anyway. But there you go. But imagine after she's explained what the thin blue line is. How should I respond? Well, I'm not going to change my life. Yeah, right. Yeah, right. How about, I don't believe it. Get another one. Which, by the way, we did. And it also had a thin blue line on it. How do I respond? Well, look at what Jesus says. At the end of verse 15, repent and believe the good news. Guess what Jesus wants you to do, and me. He wants you, first of all, to believe these things. Repent and believe the good news. Don't look at that and go, no, that's not true. Jesus says that's true. If you don't believe it, you're listening to some other announcement from somebody. I don't know who. Please tell me at the dome afterwards. Jesus says, don't listen to that announcement. Listen to these announcements. This is true. Jesus says, believe the good news. You've got no good ground not to believe those good news. But secondly, Jesus says, repent. 
In other words, it's not enough to intellectually nod your heads and go, yes, that's true. He says, repent and believe the good news. In other words, what you and I have to do is we have to change our allegiance. Because these announcements are saying that Jesus is God's chosen king. So what we've got to do is tear ourselves away from our allegiance to our idols. Sex, money, pleasure, laziness. What Jesus is saying is tear yourself away from your idols and pledge allegiance to God's chosen ruler. In other words, turn your life upside down. That's what Jesus says. These things ought to change your Monday tomorrow. Your Monday should change because of those things. Repent and believe the good news. And of course, if this is God speaking, then how powerful are these words? When little Gracie stood here in the children's talk and said to Quentin, go make me a cup of coffee, Quentin said no. But if Quentin said to Gracie, Gracie, come here, she can't say no. When a policeman starts talking to you, do you turn your back and walk away? Do you? When your parents talk to you, do you turn your back and walk away? When God is speaking to you, do you turn your back and walk away? You can't. Five dramatic announcements. One response that God wants from us. Repent and believe the good news. Now, watch me do a sermon in six minutes. Because I need to finish this chapter with you. And all we're going to see in the rest of the chapter is this. If Jesus really is the ruler whom God has chosen... Where's the proof? What do you expect to see? When you look at Jesus, now we finished with the beginning of the gospel. By the way, I take it that verse 1 to verse 15 is verse 1, the beginning of the gospel. The gospel now starts in verse 16. It starts. And what do you expect to see? A man has been declared to be God's ruler. What do you see? You look at Jesus. Do you see a golden crown? Do you see purple robes? Do you see a big dinner plate behind his head? What do you expect to see when you see Jesus? How will you know that it's true? And the answer is only one word. Authority. If he is who God says he is, then what you're looking for is authority. If he shows authority, then he will really be the ruler that God has chosen. And that's exactly what the rest of chapter 1 is about. I'll show you very quickly. Very, I won't be long. We'll read it together. Look at the authority Jesus has got. First of all, Jesus got authority over people. Look at verse 16 to 20. Passing along the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. Jesus says to them, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on a little further, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were in the moat, mending the nets. And immediately he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants and followed him. What if, what's going on there? This is not a story about how good the disciples were. Jesus, those guys were obedient. I wish I was obedient like that. Don't read the Bible as a book of examples. Most of the people in the Bible are not worth copying. No. Verse 16 and 20 is a demonstration of the authority of Jesus. He says, hey, you, come here, follow me. And they leave their nets and their father and the hired hands and they follow Jesus. What are we learning? Jesus demonstrates remarkable 
authority over people. And look around you. Look, look to the person to your left, to your right. These are people that Jesus has exercised authority over. They've never seen him. No one in this room has seen Jesus, but they've heard his words. And it turns their life around and they start following him. It demonstrates authority. Secondly, Jesus has got authority in his teaching. Look at 21 to 22. They went into Capernaum and immediately on the Sabbath he entered the synagogue and was teaching. And they were astonished at his teaching for he taught them as one who had authority, not as the scribes. In other words, what we see here is that Jesus' teaching is personal. It's from me to you. The scribes say, listen everybody, this is what God says. Muhammad says, listen everybody, this is what God says. Jesus says, no, listen to me, I'm telling you. In other words, the locus of authority is in himself. That's why they say his authority, his teaching is astonishing. It's like one who's got authority, not as the scribes. Then he's got authority over evil spirits. He's an authority over evil spirits, verse 23 to 28. And immediately there was in the synagogue a man with an unclean spirit. And he cried out, what have you got to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are. The Holy One of God, which tells me the theological colleges in hell are better than most on the planet. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, be silent, come out of him. And the unclean spirit convulsed him and crying out with a loud voice came out of him. And they were amazed. So they questioned among themselves, saying, what is this? A new teaching with authority. He commands even the unclean spirits and they obey him. And at once his fame spread everywhere throughout all the surrounding region of Galilee. Jesus has got incredible authority over evil spirits. How does he do it? How does he exercise his authority? All of it is through his words. As he speaks, people follow. As he speaks, he teaches. As he speaks, demons come out, which tells me, verse 21 to 28, if you start preaching the gospel in any church, there will be trouble. How long do you think that demon-possessed man sat in church, Sunday by Sunday, Sabbath by Sabbath? It's only when the gospel comes that there's confrontation. Verse 29 to 31, Jesus got authority over sickness. Immediately he left the synagogue, entered the house of Simon and Andrew with James and John. Now Simon's mother-in-law lay ill with fever, and immediately they told him about it. And he came and he took her by the hand and lifted her up, and the fever left her, and she began to serve them. Jesus has authority over sickness. Look at this, folks. Try, help me here. What realm, R-E-A-L-M, what realm does Jesus not have authority over? Look at it. People, that's the world of human beings, you and me. Teaching, that's the world of truth. Evil spirits, that's the spiritual world that we can't see. Sickness, that's the physical world. Microbes, bacteria, viruses. Which area in the universe does Jesus not have authority over? He demonstrates it for us in his word. He exercises absolute authority. I'm beginning to think that those announcements are true. Aren't you? Aren't they worth trusting? Well, we're left with two last things because Matt says I have to finish the chapter. Verse 35 to 39 
is Jesus' priority. And I'm going to leave you with a question for next week, which Matt Malcolm will have to answer. Verse 35 to 39. Rising very early in the morning, while it was still dark, he departed and went out to a desolate place, and there he prayed. And Simon and those who were with him searched for him. They found him. They said to him, everyone's looking for you. And he said to them, let us go to the next towns that I may preach there also. For that is why I came out. And he went throughout all Galilee, preaching in their synagogues and casting out demons. Here's the question, what is the priority of the king? And the answer is what? Preaching. But Jesus, you can do so much good. So Peter comes to him and says, you know this revival ministry we've started, where you're healing everyone and casting out demons? It's working. It's brilliant. The whole town's coming. Come on, Jesus, let's do more of this stuff. And Jesus says, no, let's go somewhere else. Because I have come to preach. Oh, what a letdown. Why is his priority with all that power? Why is his priority in preaching? I'm not going to tell you. Come next week. Because that leads directly on to Mark chapter 2, 1 to 11. You will see why his priority is preaching. Why we make it our aim of our church to seek above all else preaching. If someone gets healed physically in our church, we will rejoice We pray for sick sick people, but we won't let it distract us from preaching. Come next week and hear why. Right, any questions and any comments?